Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Simon Edge. With a Cambridge degree in philosophy, Simon Edge began his journalism career reporting on business in the Middle East before joining the London paper Capital Gay as news editor and then editor. After the paper's collapse, he was on the staff of the London Evening Standard and then the Daily Express. He was also a senior contributing editor at Attitude magazine, and he attended the founding meeting of the LGB Alliance. Since 2016, Simon has focused primarily on writing fiction and is the author of four previous novels, The Hopkins Conundrum, long listed for the Waverton Goodread Award, The Hurdle of Hell, A Right Royal Face-Off, and Anyone for Edmund. His work is primarily satirical and often juxtaposes modern and historical narratives as he does in his newly released The End of the World is Flat. His Italian husband Ezio died of cancer in 2017 and he lives in Suffolk. I welcome Simon Edge to Savage Minds. Let's just start with the epigraph of your book, Simon. A time is coming when men will go mad and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him saying, you are mad, you are not like us. St. Anthony the Great. Can you place this historically, this quote? I, I actually, I, I can't remember where I got it. I, I, I saw it as, you know, with so much else these days on Twitter, I think. Um, I think it's accurate, you know, quite quite often, you know, we people make up quotes and put Winston Churchill or Barack Obama. Um, but I, uh, from my Googling, I think it's true. Uh, 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 it, it's a true quote. And just that idea, you know, we all, uh, and anybody who has been involved with this issue, uh, where we know that we're the only sane people, uh, but we are decried as, I mean, like, like for example, the, the Maya Forstatter case, where in this country, when... Maya, I, li I listen to BBC journalists on flagship BBC um, news programmes describing Maya's legal victory, um, but referring to her beliefs as if, you know, kind of however awful, however crazy these beliefs are, that they're now protected under the law and we must respect her right to have them. And, there's, and it's sort of said with a shudder, like, you know, however repugnant they are, without actually mentioning that these are not beliefs, these are facts, these are just about where babies come from and where they don't come from. Um, so this notion that the world has gone mad, has turned upside down, that, that lunacy is regarded as sanity and sanity is regarded as lunacy. It was quite comforting to read that quote. And as I say, I wish I did know what the context was. I ought to find out, I suppose, um, to find that maybe, you know, what we're dealing with now isn't quite as new and unique as we think it is. Certainly, we see the words Orwellian, we see citations from 1984, all throughout Twitter, where feminists are saying two plus two does not equal five. How on earth is it that in an era, we're now well over 20, actually 30 years, I started using the internet in the 80s, uh, of internet usage, we have dictionaries, books, encyclopedias, we have 
medical records. And if you know the right plugins to get and extensions, you can read an awful lot for free. How is it, Simon, that we have so much information available to us? We don't have to take a bus. We don't have to pay money to take that bus. We don't have to lose the hour and a half to and from the library taking the bus. This is what I used to do when I was a kid going to the library in downtown New Orleans to do research for my seventh grade research paper. Now, it's a flick of turning on a computer. How hard can that be? Doing it a search in a search engine. And we are literally defending ideas that were cemented during the Enlightenment. You know, one could argue that your novel <laughs> is an adaptation of everything one can read on Twitter, on Reddit forums, etc. Yeah, I, good. good. I'm, I'm glad it reads like that because it's it's supposed to be a distillation of all the. As the opening epigraph of the book, you are mad, you are not like us. And it goes through these weird hoops where in one second, it's about sex, which they call gender. In another second, sex is not real, gender is, it's neurological, but all those cis-centric neurological publications in nature and science are written by cis-heterosexist, cis-normative scientists who need to get educated, et cetera. Uh, this is the most insane stuff. I actually, you've probably heard me say this if you've listened to any of my shows on this topic, but I hate this topic with a passion because I really find that we are talking about something that was long ago decided, hence Flat Earth. And I do compare it to Flat Earth 3, which is funny reading your book, that we are saying that water is wet. How more evident do we need to be to make a statement that somehow has now gotten the ONS, various ministries, various MPs like Maria Miller, she was involved in pushing this. How did it get to such a degree that we, I feel like we are Cervantes with the windmills? I, I think... I mean, it, it's clearly, it's incredibly daunting, isn't it? When you see it, when you see the enormity of it, um, it's very hard to process and get your head around it. Um, and, you know, one useful thing perhaps is that, you know, the, 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 the term gaslighting has been around for a while, ever since, you know, the movie, I guess, but uh, it, it's now much more widely understood. It's, it's in fairly, you know, familiar parlance for lots of people. And I think that's quite helpful because that sort of helps us understand what this process is of deliberate confusion, just deliberate messing people, messing with people's heads. Like, um, uh, you know, for example, there, there was there was one thing where, where uh, uh, I can't even remember what it was, but there'll, there'll be a day where, well, well, uh, um, uh, the, the, the ideologues are, are claiming X and then we're claiming Y. And then the next day they'll say the evil turfs are claiming X. And so, no, we, don't. we were claiming Y yesterday. And now you've just turned the, the table, the, you've turned the tables on everything and you're left reeling. And I think it is helpful to be able to remember that this is a deliberate process, uh, whether, you know, whether people each individual involved in the process is aware it's deliberate or not is another matter but but the confusion is part of the 
this part of the um, project. And again, you know, I think there's a, the, um, I, I've had a discussion with, with, a, with another of the authors writing books about this subject, um, about, you know, how far you can go to say that there are, you know, a smallish number of human agents behind all of this. And I, and I can, I understand that there are difficulties and I genuinely don't know the answer. Um, in my novel, I've, I've created a Mr. Big because it's just much more convenient to do it in fiction, just make things simple. But we do know that there, because we've, we've got evidence of it, something that people refer to as the Denton papers, that, that there, have been, there have been meetings, there have been consultants who have said what you need to do, because this is a fundamentally unpopular cause. If you spell it out, nobody will, nobody will accept it. What you therefore need to do is do it by stealth, um, do it through the media, but don't don't make it explicit what you're trying to do. Move the goalposts all the time. Piggyback on other much more popular causes. So we can see that happening, um, and and clearly we can also see, you know, in in the at the time of lesbian and gay, you know, the big battle for for lesbian and gay people <clears throat> to have equal rights when we genuinely didn't have them and we genuinely didn't have recognition there wasn't really any great financial interest on anybody's part in you know i remember when when people started talking about the pink pound um and it, it was a little bit desperate and so it was it was sort of clutching at straws well maybe there'll be you know companies will will start trying to market gay weddings same-sex weddings um maybe they'll get a bit of money out of that may so maybe we'll get a little bit of corporate backing and it was true that happened to a certain extent but that there wasn't a a, a major money-making imperative that was driving the social revolution. The social revolution came from people like you and me, <clears throat> excuse me, changing people's attitudes gradually and, and succeeding. Whereas this, it, you know, it, it is patently obvious that, that if you are proposing to medicalize a lot of people for life, then somebody somewhere has got substantial financial interest in that. So I think it's, it's, kind of important to hold on to those things. And then also, I think, again, to make sense of some of it, um, what's maybe helpful is to sort of focus on <clears throat> one little issue. Uh, and then if you can understand where that came from, then, you, then it helps you understand the rest of it. So for example, the, 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 the grotesque lies that are told about who started Stonewall. Um, Stonewall, the riot, that is not Stonewall, the organization, um, that, if, it, that you, if you say it often enough to uh, a group of um, highly motivated and impressionable young people who weren't born until 50 years after the events you're describing, 40 years after the events you're describing, if you say often enough that trans people uh, were entirely responsible for the Stonewall riots and that people who weren't trans were trans, then it's very difficult to counter because people have decided who they would rather listen to and they don't want to listen to Fred Sargent, who was really there, and they don't want to listen to some you know, ancient people in the LGB alliance. They would far rather listen to people in their own tribe and their own tribe have taken it on. And, and then you can see that, you know, we now know from, from the freedom of information requests that come out, the stories that have been in the Times, that, that Stonewall has been explicitly saying to its the members of its diversity champions scheme, it, if you tweet from your own 
from your social media account and not some little LGBT network account, but your proper charity main account or your civil service main account or your corporate main account, if you tweet about pride, then you will go higher up our ranking. Um, and so, you know, they, you know, you know, virtually offering them a form of words, you know, what should we tweet? Okay, well, why don't you tweet that, that, uh, that pride was started by a, by a trans woman, that the first Stonewall riots were started by a trans woman. And hey, presto, they're all doing it. And before you know it, you've got a new fact. A fact has been invented that is not a true fact. So it's, um, you know, I thought, you know, Goebbels we talked about, you know, telling lies loud enough and often enough, didn't he? So we, again, that's, there's nothing new under the sun. But it, but I, I, I think, you know, that, as I say, in order to make sense of this, it, it, it is important just to sort of try and, you know, get, get a bit of a grasp on these individual little bits of the process that is happening all around. Your book is dedicated to Alison, Gillian, Julie, Marianne, Maya and Rachel. I recognize those names, yeah. of course. Heretical globularists all. So you have a list of women who've been indicted within this movement, could be their own listicle of uh, a thousand pages at this point. Yeah, I've probably left a few off and, and, I, and I apologize to people I have left off. The list was growing as I was writing the book. Marion Miller is a very recent addition, but uh, yeah, I, I, I really, I wanted to make the point because as you'll know, having read it, that, 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 that part of the, the joke, part of the conceit of the book is that I don't mention the subject of the allegory. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to, uh, and partly I, I genuinely wanted to, to dedicate this thing, which is supposed to be entertaining, supposed to be amusing. I, I wanted to put some reminder that this is not remotely funny for the people who are at the sharp end of it, which is not me. Um, but it's also a way of saying this is what the book is really about. If you could, for our listeners, give a brief summary of your novel, because it's now released this week, correct? Well, it's, it's out on Kindle today, um, and uh, it will be out on paperback uh, a month today on the 16th of August. But if you order it, uh, particularly, you can order direct from my publisher, and you probably get it a bit sooner. But yeah, to the, um, the, 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 uh, the, the, the starting point of the novel is that people quite often talk about flat earth beliefs, um, you know, kind of God, this gender ideology stuff, it's as crazy as flat earthery. And I've always been a little bit interested in, in, in the, the history of the flat earth movement, just because I wasn't quite sure, you know, whether there was one, you know, where, where, where if, if anybody does actually believe in this stuff. Um, there was a flat earth movement in the 1970s, but it's kind of a joke. Um, so I'd been getting a little bit interested in the flat earth movement anyway. Uh, there's, there's quite a good Netflix documentary, which I've watched um, about some people in America uh, reviving this. But and I thought, well, why don't we why don't I posit um, an organization which is trying to foist flat earth beliefs on an unsuspecting world in the same way that these weird beliefs about gender and sex have been foisted on the world so I and, it, and it's very much focused on a charity based in London um, and uh, so I, 
it, it, it needs to be a geographical charity. So my charity is called the Orange Peel Foundation, um, and it is set up with a very small and limited aim. That's to say to correct the distortions on maps uh, created by the Mercator projection. I'm not, I don't know, some people will know what that means, other people won't listening to this. Uh, but basically, if you, you know, the old, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the traditional uh, representation of the of the spherical world on a uh, on a flat uh, piece of paper, flat map, um, when you spread it out, it, it uh, a, a, a sphere does not convert naturally to a uh, 2D piece of paper, two-dimensional piece of paper. So you'll get distortions, like Antarctica is bigger than any other country in the world, which it isn't really. So um, that there has been, you know, uh, complaints. There have been that there have been uh, pressures for, for quite some time just to correct these distortions that we get in maps of the world. So I thought, let's have a charity whose goal it is to have a more accurate representation of the world when you see it on maps um, and there's a, there is in in real life there's a there's a, a map projection called the orange peel projection which is more accurate and that's why it's called the orange peel foundation so it basically has very modest but but very benign aims and it has a visionary leader uh, who's very good at um, getting the point across and the charity is just reached the point where it's convinced everybody in the world that it's right and they should comply. And the leader of the charity, because she is a responsible kind of person, she's built up a, a decent sized organization with great respect. And she's about to wind it up because there's no, you know, there's no point in just keeping it going in order to keep people's jobs on because they'll all get jobs somewhere else anyway. And then they're contacted by a billionaire, uh, a tech billionaire in California called Joey Talavera, uh, who uh, has heard of the charity and wants to use it, um, wants to use its skills um, for his own geographical enterprise, namely to convince the world that the earth is flat. And the founder, who's called Mel, uh, is horrified by this. Um, and she gets sacked by her board and her number two comes on, who's called Shane. Uh, and uh, he sets out to convince the world the earth is flat. Um, and uh, it's a terrifying prospect, but he gets some help by, from a, a master of the dark arts. Um, and, uh, uh, and 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 his his, uh, his his understanding of it his his insight is that you will need to piggyback onto pre-existing conspiracy theories like quite a lot of people believe the moon landings are faked uh, and also into a pre-existing social movement so people are angry about racism they're angry about uh the um the coloni the original colonization of north america um they hate christopher columbus who is wrongly associated with vanquishing flat earth beliefs so why not why not piggyback on all that just create some myths um and and crucially convince people that the division of the earth into two hemispheres is a social construct um and it's there and it has a racist effect because it divides the world into, into uh, uh, north and south and the south gets a rougher time, gets a rougher deal of it. So the idea really is to, is to get some, is, is to start with some things where there is a kernel of truth and then just spin them and see where you go. 
um, and, uh, and, and clearly it's silly, uh, but it, it is meant to have the sort of alarming ring of truth that if somebody did give you this project, how would you go about it? And, and I think, you know, what I've tried to do is go about it in a reasonably plausible way. And then it takes, it, it gathers an energy because it also needs some enemies because, uh, you know, but people, people in the, in the age of social media, they'll believe anything we've learned, haven't we, that uh, people will believe anything as long as the rest of their tribe believe it, and as long as people they admire believe it. So once you get something going through some hashtags and maybe some bots, uh, and also you get some written, you, ha you have some nasty people that you will hate. So there's a, there's, um, a, a journalist who sort of blunders into this called Ginny Pugh, and she has noticed that something is, 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 is afoot at uh, the Orange Peel Foundation. Um, and she sort of walks into a trap because they're looking for uh, a, a, an enemy to take down that everybody can hate online. And, uh, uh, and they, you know, there's a, there's a little joke here that um, the, the new ideology is called the, it's called the True Earth Movement. And, and the resistance to it um, are, are reviled as true earth rejecting globularists, which of course is T-E-R-G for short, so they're Turgs, and they are censored in the UK, which is Turg Island. So um, <coughs> this was a way of signifying in a not particularly subtle way what it's really meant to be about. Um, and uh, and then the second half of the book is is the Turk fight back, and uh, and so people will have to read it to see what happens. The Orange Peel campaign, you know, in early on in the book, was being infiltrated into the schools and TV shows. You have Zach and Jack on the box, and well, one of your characters, the male character, is is given the mission, in fact, to take on this project. Now, it's, we all know reading it, if we've been on Twitter five minutes, what organization you are comparing this to. Yes. Uh, it could be actually one of several, but we, you know, <laughs> it's, it's quite clear. And you, are, you use an incredibly lively prose to make fun of this. Again, it almost does it for itself. There are days when I see Twitter and I see something, some of these advocates, the trans advocates have posted, and I wonder if it's real or not. Or just like when I see CNN or The Guardian or The Independent putting out something on the same subject, I wonder if it's The Onion and vice versa. You, you never know what's real or not some days. Yeah. So. When you wrote this one point that I'm going to read for our listeners that I really, I just loved. They still tell the same lies to this day, but the scales are falling from more and more people's eyes. And this here is the clue that's been hiding in plain sight all along. Without telling anyone what they were doing, the UN adopted Parallax's map as their logo. They added some more circles and changed the colors, but otherwise it's identical. And the parallax drawing is the truest representation of the world. And I was thinking about this because in your book, Parallax, well, you're making a reference in the book. Parallax is a tetic thinker of the 19th century. Yeah, par parallax is real. <clears throat> parallax was, was basically the, um, the most prominent person in, in, uh, in Europe in the 19th century who, who passionately believed the earth was flat. And, and it is, you know, bizarre fact that the UN logo 
that, that you, you might think of as a globe if you, if you just picture it, but actually if you go and have a look at it, really bizarre fact, it really is the same as the traditional flat earth map. Uh, I would read nothing into it, but they do. <laughs> and it's also come to mean in physics, the displacement or a difference in the a position of an object or the apparent position of the object viewed along two different lines of sight, which mm. gives rise to different perspectives. And this is the kind of stuff that Descartes was arguing, both in mm. terms of optics in the first half of his book, Discourse on a Method, I believe, yeah. would be the English title. And, and then the second part of his book, which also deals with the geometries of vision, but carried forth to thought. And I'm wondering to what degree we are reliving some of the same arguments that people like Descartes or even earlier took on in the sense of we're living in a, a world with so much information and yet there seems to be more science denialism than one could shake a stick at. How is it possible that you're having to write a fictional book. I mean, you, you would almost have to because otherwise you would be called many things for writing a more scientific book as is happening. There are people coming out with books that are social science and such on this matter, on this very same issue. And they have to fight the fake science claims. Well, the brain is biologically set by gender. Gender is both not binary, on, depending on what day you interact with these activists, or it's absolutely binary. Um, sports are, are bizarrely always binary because there's never an option for a third category, etc. So what is it about our current era that is very reminiscent of the 16th century, for instance? I think it's, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, when you... Um... You, looking at it from from the point of view of, you know, if you're 16 or you know, if, you, if, if you're one of the young people on Twitter, who you know, one of the bizarre things about Twitter is that when people are behind avatars you, uh, and and people are having big fights with people, you've got no idea what they actually look like, and you know, it could be a uh, a 50 year old man uh, behind an avatar pretending to be a 15 year old girl but it could be genuinely a 15 year old could be genuinely somebody very impressionable who 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 absolutely sincerely when they say read a book educate yourself read some science because as you say they they've read op-eds in in nature and so on or they've or they've seen them referred to um you can absolutely sincerely believe that that you are the one who's completely in step with the received wisdom and received science and it's these ridiculous old turfs that are the ones who are out of step with it because the world does seem to indicate that to you and one of the um uh i think one perhaps one of the difficulties that i, uh, I heard something the other week about conspiracy theories and uh it, it was looking at the, the relationship between belief in, in really crazy stuff and education. But it was also saying there's a sort of, there's a, there's a, there's a social class uh, element to it because, you know, if I, 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 I'm, you know, I had, I had a 30 year career um, as a journalist, um, mainly in national newspapers. Um, so if I hear a conspiracy about the media, 
I'm good at evaluating it. If I hear a conspiracy theory about the media, I'm good at evaluating it because I know whether or not it's likely to be true because we, it, it either correlates with my experience or it doesn't. Most people who don't have my insider take on the national media don't have the ability to do that. However, people that know me uh, do. So if you know, educated people, people from, from uh, the middle class or the chattering classes are more likely to know people who are in the media. So they're more likely to have a, some idea how, how to assess whether this off the wall sounding theory is true or not. And so the further away you get from that, you get into, into a milieu where people have no acquaintance and, and no friends of friends who are in any kind of, you know, any kind of corridor of power, who never met an MP, just which, which you know, accounts probably for the vast majority of people. So your ability to evaluate sources goes down and down and down. And um, so, you know, what, what's the difference between now and this, uh, and the, the era of, of Descartes? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's, it, it, it's looking at what the available sources were. Um, in those days, um, 400, 500 years ago, um, there were far fewer books and there were far fewer people capable of reading the books and having any kind of access to the books. There was an awful lot of word of mouth and a lot of the word of mouth was, was very crazy and it was based on, on religious ideas. So it was profoundly unscientific. Uh, in our age, we have an awful lot of access to printed stuff, to the printed, to, to, the, to the written word, but because there is such a surface of it, then people's ability to distinguish between, you know, what's, you know, you and I both, if, if, you're, if, you're, not a, if you're not a specialist in something, I, I never did a, a moment's biology at school, so all I know what to do is to believe the people I think are going to be right. And we all make that judgment because we can't be experts on everything. Um, uh, but, uh, and, and I think the, uh, amid this surfeit of information, it, be, uh, it becomes very difficult for many, many people to make their own informed, intelligent assessment of who's likely to be right and who isn't. And, and then the, the, those waters are very, very deliberately muddied by this basically, you know, let's call it, you know, really, really immoral, really, really criminal behavior of organizations which not only ought to know better, but do know better, very, very cynically rejecting everything that they ought to stand for, basically to curry favor in a, in a social media environment. Um, so, so let's not blame the people who don't have the ability to tell the difference and who are, who are understandably confused. Let's blame the people, you know, the, cha the, the charity sector churning out this nonsense when they, they you know, these are highly educated people who are paid 10 times what I'm paid, who really do know better. I think that there's a lot to be said for drag culture and the negatives I think the feminists have highlighted all along. I do think there are benefits. And I think, you know, there's a lot to say about the debate of is drag misogynist or not? I think that is a debate that needs to happen again. But if we look back to Wayne Kustenbaum, uh, a scholar of English literature, wrote a really great book in the 90s called The Queen's Throat. And it's all about gay male culture and opera. And 
I'd have to say that that discussion should happen in tandem with reading his book, because I think there's a lot about the way in which the coding of gay culture took place through these kinds of performatives, such as She's in a Mood, just like the bandana worn, was it in the left, left, left back pocket or the right back pocket, or Oscar Wilde, let's get back to then when he was wearing a green cravat. And that was a sign of the time of being a gay man. Who could read the sign, of course, were other gay men. That's why it was a coded sign. Um, and I think a lot of people miss that, including people in our own you know, Friends of Dorothy Club, as it were. And I regret that yeah. the queering of the late 80s, mostly the 90s and the early noughts, has resulted in yeah. an obliteration of gay history. Queer theory was born from, in its early days, a desire to bring the gay out of the closet into the light. It was a way, in the same way that the N-word has been co-opted by a lot of rap artists, queer was a way, it was one of those words that, well, you, gay men were called as a, a way of insult. And this was, no, you're not gonna call me queer, I'm gonna mm. call myself queer. Now that's how queer started and people need to remember that because it was not about removing the yeah. specificity of gay male desire. But all of this happened at the same time, in the early 90s, you had a California scholar, D.A. Miller, who wrote a really beautiful compendium, bringing out Bart with yes. the translation of Barthes, uh, Roland Barthes' Incident, which is beautiful. I really love this book. It's a very short autobiographical sketch that Barthes writes about his cruising in Paris in a pharmacy late at night and such. And I think we need to remember that the coding was needed. And if drag formed that part of the coding, mm. so be it. And if drag formed part of the cover story as to why men grouped together in underground clubs like Stonewall in the 40s and 50s, then so be it. And I think we're losing that history uh, because I think there's a lot of anger from feminists saying, well, that's misogynist. Well, let's peel that onion because I think that drag queens are not only about misogyny. I, I think there are many readings of drag. Well, one of the reasons I was drawn into this issue was I was basically listening to a lot of women and, and it was striking a chord with, with what I had thought, but I, I spent a lot of time sort of reading and learning on, on Twitter. And, and uh, there was one person in particular um, uh, who, who I used to know in real life and, and, and now know well on Twitter, who was basically saying, we do we need gay men to step up because this is appalling for lesbians. Um, and I was convinced by that, and so I did. And, but so to, to some extent, this, or to a large extent, this is something which I'm involved in on, you know, because it feels like the right thing to do on other people's behalf. And it, 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 it isn't as, anywhere near as personal as it, for me as it is for, for women. But where it is personal for me um, is that, uh, you know, I was very involved in <clears throat> culturally and in, in all of the things that you just talked about. I was uh, the, uh, I was news editor and then editor uh, uh, only for less than two years, but a very formative time for me at Capital Gay, which was, uh, I was at the end of its life, but in the 1980s, it, it was a, and it was a tremendously important uh, newspaper in in London gay life, 
and 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 I really do feel an anger that that part of my history is being stolen for the most cynical reasons. Uh, and even you know, you mentioned Section Twenty Eight before. There, there are people. Uh, quite often, when you, you if, if if you see a young person sounding off on Twitter and it's Section Twenty Eight, this Section Twenty Eight, that, and by young person, I mean you know the some of the, the the very prominent millennials who who appointed themselves the spokespeople for this, but who were born in the mid eighties. And if you think that Section Twenty Eight was the worst thing that happened in 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 pre reform. Uh, UK or pre-reform Western world, then you weren't there because Section 28 wasn't you. Section 28 misfired badly. It was it was uh, 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 an ill-intended uh, law, but it was never used. Nobody was ever prosecuted under it, and it backfired spectacularly, generating the modern lesbian and gay movement. The laws that were used were gross indecency, uh, which were basically against public cruising. Men were locked up for it. The age of the unequal age of consent, men were locked up for it. Lives were ruined. People, lesbians and gay men, were thrown out of the armed forces. Their lives were ruined. They they lost their pensions. That you there was a you you could be sacked from from the foreign office. I mean, you know, let let maybe we won't have massive sympathy for spies and ambassadors, but you, you you weren't allowed to be one if you were openly gay. You could not progress on that career path. And one of the things that makes me just so spectacularly angry is that uh you know that lately uh the the head of mi6 the you know, kind of the, the the british external security spy agency um uh issued something in in pride month some other you know everything it's always pride month isn't it um some statement saying we're we apologize for our historical treatment of LGBTQI plus plus people. Um, and, you know, I, I had a fight with the journalist, quite a prominent BBC journalist over it. So why are you reporting it like that? You can look it up. There was a law. The law said that if you were lesbian or gay, you could not be employed by MI6 or by the Foreign Office. And they had every legal right. In fact, they had a duty to sack you. There was nothing in those laws that said uh, that you were going to be sacked for being asexual, which is one of the A's, as you know, or for being an ally, which is another of the A's, or for being queer, which is, you know, these days has come to mean any straight person that thinks they're too interesting to be straight. That kind of thing absolutely infuriates me because it, it shows not only is it, is this movement, um, and, and it's the queer theory movement, as much as it's the trans movement, not only is it being parasitic on, on the really terrible things that a lot of us went through. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I just, I was buffeted by it. I, I was never arrested. I mean, you know, I, uh, uh, but, but, but my early, the, 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 the first half of my adulthood was, was really, really distorted by living in this horribly discriminatory world. Um, all your relationships with everybody around you was, were, were distorted. So I'm angry about that being trivialized, but it's also, it, it, it's like, I mean, this ideology is, you know, it's proper cuckoo in the nest because it's, it's coming into our nest, de demanding to be there. Okay, all right, you can, you can be here. And then throwing us out of it, ju just negating everything that ever happened. So 
you know, and the, 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 so, so Stonewall now, for example, it, it is, you know, you read the, 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 the list of the things that they campaign for on their website, and, and there are these umpteen genders and umpteen different kinds of asexual and uh, who, 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 which are you know, minorities that they have newly invented so they can advocate for them. When the hell was anybody arrested for this? When the hell was anybody discriminated against for not liking sex very much? That, that, that just makes me furious. And I know it does, as I started, and um, it pales in comparison with the really, truly awful things that are happening to women every day. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Let's go back to our profession. I mean, you were reporting on business. May I ask where you were in the Middle East? Yeah, well, I, actually, I mean, just to correct that, I, I, I was, um, I, I lived in the Middle East, I, I lived in Gaza, and then I lived in a Palestinian town in, in Israel um, in, in the late 80s, uh, and that gave me, that gave me Arabic um, and, uh, uh, and, a, and a strong interest and knowledge in the Middle East, and then I came back, and so I worked for a business magazine called Middle East Economic Digest, uh, which is based in London, for five years. But I wasn't very good. I'd be much better at it now, actually. I, I, as in my 20s, I had zero interest in, in business reporting. So I wasn't very good at it. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't curious enough. So I then switched to go into the gay press to the horror of my editor at the time. He thought I was totally throwing my career away to work for this trash. Um, and then uh, when Capital Gay folded, I, I went into... Uh, I sort of went into by the back door. I, I got into national newspapers or Fleet Street newspapers, as we call them here. So the, the Evening Standard at first as a, as a diary reporter. Uh, and then I arrived at the Daily Express uh, when it was going through a, a liberal, brief liberal experiment. Um, and uh, I ended up staying there for 15 years as a as a feature writer and as a theatre critic. So I've, I've had a, a real sort of mishmash um, career, but what what it does mean is what, what I'm what I'm very glad of is that working for uh, in in this country we call them middle market tabloids. So um, uh, writing for an audience where it is understood that you, the journalist, are, are probably a good deal better educated than your reader, but trying to make sometimes difficult and sometimes complicated stuff uh, both. Uh, easily understandable and also entertaining um, for that readership was actually a really good training. Uh, at the time, I kind of resented it because I thought I was a broadsheet kind of person and I should be working for a more highbrow uh, paper and I wished I was. Um, but now looking back in retrospect, I'm proud of that training because it has given me a real passion to, to say, well, here's something really complicated that I'm going to try and understand but then I'm going to try and package it to make it make other people uh, um, excited by it and entertained by it 
which you know coming back to the book that's that's very much the project of this book because you know you and I are getting very serious and and because uh, uh, we both know this subject inside out um, and we know how aggravating it is um, one of the things that I'm trying to do which which I think is is reasonably you know new and possibly unique is that um, is that I'm trying to uh, have fun with it because uh, there's not a lot of smiling and laughter that happens on this issue. I was originally surprised that a lot of people, when I was living in London, talking to other gay friends, they thought I was mean when I would talk to them about this. Back in 2014, 15, they were like, why are you being mean to trans people? And I said, can't you see this is gay conversion therapy? And I got disinvited from a friend's house once over this discussion, seriously, I was shocked because I'm thinking, wait a sec, we've got something that's clearly homophobic in front of us, but many people could not see it. They still had their Oyster card pass holders. Uh, what is it? The Stonewall logo? I'm gay, get over it. So their idea was Stonewall saved us in the 80s. It's, it will save us again, or we just have to get in step and be kind to these people because remember how it felt like when we were treated that way and i think there's been a huge success in getting people to climb on board of something that's completely anti-science because of guilt yeah well it, i mean that's very persuasive i i i you know so i was at the dead express which was you know, at some points when I was there, I, it wasn't very pleasant to be caught there. It was a snarlingly right-wing paper and uh, getting anything positive about anything lesbian or gay in that was a major achievement, even if it was, you know, half a line. And these are the little battles that journalists go through every day and nobody ever sort of sees it from the outside. Um, but it, on a couple of occasions, I did big pieces on uh, trans women um, and uh, and it felt like a big deal to put something very sympathetic and and in one you know I remember very vividly going to meet um, a, uh, a a recently transitioned male to female and wife um, and the wife was being very supportive um, and I and, and the guy uh, the trans woman um, had written a blog about long history of dysphoria and it, it was good it was it was very powerful and it it was basically talking about a long history of confusion since the age of um uh you, you know kind of five or something uh and uh, and it was written uh, you know very persuasively and uh, uh and coherently and as a as a man, you know, he was unlucky as a man in that he was about six foot three and built like a football player and was transitioning to 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 be a woman, and there was no way he was going to pass. So he looked exactly like a like what he was, like a trans woman, and and at that time you could not, you know, I I could not fail to be sympathetic because this was not a threat to me certainly. Um, uh, and why on earth would anybody go through this unless it really, really mattered to them? Um, and the wife was being hugely supportive. They were both very nice. Um, and for me, this was just 
really setting foot in a in a in a in a wacky old world of, of, of just trying to understand what the hell it was like in this person's head and why they would go through through all this stuff. And I think that's that that's very common. You know, we've saw that, that film uh, with uh, Felicity Huffman in it. Uh, um, Trans America. Trans America, exactly. That was yeah, really persuasive. Um, uh, the, 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 there was the other one, the 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 the, the one that uh, what's her name, um, Hilary Swank, got the Oscar for about boys don't America. cry. Boys don't cry. Yeah. So so these you know, these are big things in the culture, and when you watch stuff like that, which are all about uh, you know, kind of somebody vulnerable. And, and big swarms of horrible bigots all around them. So you in the cinema are in the head of that person. Uh, and, and of course you are on their side. And of course you, you are, are revolted by, by uh, the stuff that is happening to them. And, you know, I think that's right. I think that's, I think that's a good thing. But uh, that when, when we were, you know, it seems such a long time ago, it was only about 10 years ago, wasn't it? 10 years, 15 years, maybe boys, boys don't cry. But now it seems like such a different age because those were those were isolated individuals who were wrestling with stuff, and and there was there was no sense that that there were that you know they didn't have a movement behind them, which was trying to validate the stuff they were going through by by. Um, uh, pasting it on to, to kids of two, three, four years old, um, going into schools and telling them that you have to go through all this too, the injecting the confusion into, you know, and that's the other thing that makes me furious when, when people say that, that this is only like, uh, like the gay struggles. Y yes, they did. There was, there was a, a, a nasty slur in the 1970s and 80s, the gays are after your children, um, which was trying to paint us as pedophiles. And you know they, they 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 need to recruit for the next generation. It was a lie. The reason we rejected it is because it was an utter lie. And the reason it's so different from now is that they are the trans, the extreme gender ideology movement is explicitly doing this, and it's doing it with government funding. So how dare they tell us that this is the same as what we were doing? We'll skip to recent articles, even from last week, where it's very clear that the general population cannot distinguish you and I from trans people. They see us as one group because of this horrible journalistic coverage that mm. refuses to separate the T from the LGB, which ethically it should. Uh, mm. I remember when I, I was living in Italy at the time, I came back to New York, I saw the T everywhere, and I had done some research for gay men's health crisis in New York and they added the T to their mandate. And I said, what, what does, what's the T? Transgender. What does that have to do with us? And I, I still scratch my head over that. How people allowed that to be added on is a conundrum. Mm. It literally has nothing to do with us. And people say, well, remember how homosexuality used to be pathologized? It was in the DSM. Yes, it was pathologized. It was in the DSM. Uh, very differently, however, we were not running about the globe, the round globe, telling mm -hmm. people to see me and my girlfriend as me and my boyfriend. We never did that. We mm -hmm. were just saying, this is us, this is me, and I like women, and 
da, da, da. Uh, there was never any public brainwashing involved. It was just about accept the fact that I'm not like you. Now, the trans movement is very much about a publicity drive to get people to not only repeat a lie, but to become a mirror. And I have problems with this because first of all, in my normal friendships, pre-COVID, <laughs> as if I've seen a human. <laughs> Anyways, our friendships tend not to be based on, tell me how I look, do I pass, am I woman enough? But this is what is commanded of us in these online debates to parrot, to mirror. And yes, I have friends who identify as transgender in the past. And when they went through that process of transitioning, I had to distance myself because of these very same demands made of me. And I am not queer eye for a trans person. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you how to, why? I don't see this as anything to be coming to me with advice for, you know, I'm not, I'm simply not the person, I'm not Tim Gunn. And I don't understand why our society is giving a pass to a movement that's extremely homophobic and regressive. I was just looking at the Rodriguez Emmy nomination and I, I found it quite sad. The way in which women are being replaced by men, even on screen. And some, you know, someone might say, well, that's not most. No, it's not most, not at the second, but it's more and more every year. And I can see why the feminists are getting angrier and angrier with each nomination and each new rule. And each, you must, the NUJ tells us how we have to refer to these men. And I will not, because I think that our social codes are still dictated by, yes, kindness, but the first act of kindness is not telling me how to speak. Yeah. And we forget that rule. And I, I think what, what's, um, again, for, for, for you and me, we, we are empowered in this debate because we have the confidence of our vocabulary um uh we, we we know what is considered right the right and wrong thing to say uh you know i i know the vocabulary that i use i know if it's going to um you know if i if i if if i were in a different environment um i i would i know what vocabulary is going to be problematic for for people on the other side of this argument it's up to me now and then choose what I actually say. But but for most people, for people who I, I live in the countryside, I live in a, a you know, kind of fairly conservative rural environment, and, and most people are petrified of expressing an opinion because they don't know what you're allowed to say and what you're not. And I, I find it, you know, it's uh, there's a huge sense of relief. Once I, you know, let it be known that I am not one of these crazed zealots who's going to berate them and I may actually be entirely on their side and it is okay to say exactly what they want and then I can tell them lots of things that will really shock them uh, and, and the sense of palpable relief. But, uh, but l l like with any subject where there is, where there is a profound controversy, that people, people shy away if their vocabulary is policed um, and uh, but that doesn't prevent them having opinions about it. But this also impacts on journalists. One of the reasons I think, you know, I know that, you know, feminists are very, very angry and with justification uh, at uh, 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 huge numbers of men and, and male journalists for avoiding this and letting women 
uh, take the brunt of it. Um, uh, but I think, uh, you know, in, in to, to, to some extent, it, it, it's it's not entirely lack of will on the part of those men. Um, it, it really is just terror of not knowing, you know, having an instinct, knowing vaguely deep down inside which side they're on, but also knowing that because they're not immersed in it, they stick a toe in it. They'll get their heads bitten off. They'll 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 mess up the, the whole argument. They'll be trounced because they just don't have the vocabulary that they can use with confidence. Yes, I get emails regularly from people, and a lot of them are from gay men who over the years have said, I agree so much with what I read of yours, and I wish I had the courage to speak out. And I, write, I wrote them back. I would always say, speak out. Oh, but I, some worked in theater. Some worked in very high-profile roles. And I would encourage them to speak out. I said, well, things will change, but they will change if we all speak out together how will we get through this? Because in your book, what I really loved were the pieces where you re, you do a, a simulation of Twitter, let's call it. Yeah. And you have, I love this one. Hello at Hipster's Ruin. Can I ask why you follow at Globy Dick? He's an outspoken globularist. I'm a big fan of artisan gin. So I love your product, but endorsing Turk racism is not acceptable. <laughs> And you, you get at what's happened. Maya's job was lost. Many other people have lost their jobs. People are using capitalism as a way of propping up trans ideology, but also to take down those who say, I'm a gender atheist. Yeah, that, that one I copied. I mean, it's funny, actually, these things that cause celebs for, for a whole week, and then, then there's so many of them, we forget about them. But I did copy that almost word for word for, from, from um, I won't say what brand it is, but, but it, was a, it was a soft drink uh, uh, brand where somebody did say, how, how dare you follow this person? Um, and the apology that I've got is, um, uh, is, is very close to the one they did because you did, how, how, what's the point of doing, you know, satire, the best satire is documentary and we live in a, in an age which is satirizing itself <laughs> so uh, uh, just kind of um, just take snapshots of it and, and, and you're satirizing the world we live in. But I, I, I mean I think maybe w w one thing I would like to just interject is perhaps a few positive notes that, um, that yes the left, uh, the liberal press uh, here has been uh, utterly shameful but uh, there have been other publications have stepped into the breach. So the Daily Telegraph, which, which is a, has always been a horrible uh, publication uh, on, on many issues, uh, you know, conservative supporting and Brexit supporting and blah, 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 has been absolutely exemplary on this. Uh, the, the Times uh, has been leading the way and you know, I think it's, as I know from my own experience on newspapers, that, that, that often it can be, um, you know, a couple of people who are sticking their necks out and nagging internally and, and who are establishing a profile for the publication on this issue and are, are, are writing with authority. As it happens... Uh, those papers are doing themselves no harm because probably you know, most of their readership will, will also agree once it's properly explained to them. But um, 
you know we live we live in a in an upside down world where where all the old certainties are, are, are falling apart but but it you know it's quite nice actually that they're being replaced some of them are being replaced by by new surprising uh little uh outbursts of friendliness uh in unsus in in, in uh, unexpected places and and also on on twitter i mean clearly you know everybody says this is a cesspit um uh, with uh and uh with a great deal of truth um graham linehan is is very entertaining on the subject of how he thought Twitter was going to change the world and it's going to be brilliant and and he you know so people the likes of me people comedians making it um m making it quite cool to to go in there and to pioneer it in the way that people didn't do with facebook you know facebook is is seen by fashionable people as a bit naff and celebrities as a bit naff whereas twitter was it that was where they were going to be and and he you know, graham says you know how stupid was i uh so it's partly my fault he says um uh, but that being said i have made some really quite in, in lockdown for me i spent far too much time on twitter i got a book out of it uh, but i've also made some really nice friends i've listened to a lot of people i've learned a lot i've learned a huge amount um uh, the, the the twitter friends i have uh some of them have, tra have translated into real life friends or that funny way you go the sort of transition you gradually move to become facebook friends and then you see pictures of people and then you can you know just about you might eventually be on telephone terms uh, but it's nice it's so 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 not everything about this social media world is is appalling and um, and i i like the way um uh the the, the pe people are organizing and and form a by and large really supportive community uh who get behind each other and support each other and clearly people are only doing this because needs must and it's brutal out there and this is a kind of safe space that people have created it but they are doing it and so amid the grimness uh it it, it is a sort of um a little oasis of optimism and and the other thing that we need to bear in mind is i mean i know it 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 it, it, it depends largely on age and for people as you said earlier under the age of 30 they're very very captured by this ideology but we do have to remind ourselves that most people in the world aren't um and uh they are either coerced into it or they are unaware of it or they are quietly resisting it um and uh you know the, the you've been involved in this far longer than i have um knowing all the detail much in, in much more closely than i have but you know so, so you'll you'll recognize that now there are there are more people who are resisting it more people are aware of what's going on so it, it does get easier because this movement has become so arrogant it is overreaching itself the, the gay and lesbian movement we never said if you don't fancy me you're a homophobe you know have you ever said that to anybody that we never dreamt of saying it's on my dating profile <laughs> <laughs> all we said was we just want to you know please just leave us in peace we, we can have lives we just like to have them without without being legally discriminated against and the idea that people are dictating 
who you can sleep with and who you can't and who you should fancy. It's, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it, it's got its own destruction built into it. It's so absurd. Well, during lockdown, I noticed in your after you talk about this book being born of lockdown in a sense. I thought during lockdown this. Okay, now people are starting to become overnight virologists, immunologists. Maybe that science will kick in that they start to realize there's no female penis. So it died down for a few months. There was not so much trans madness going about the media because there were loads of people dying. People were getting sick. We were getting freaked out collectively and individually. And then it came back. And I thought, what part of science? I mean, do you only get the COVID science? Can't you do the whole module, you know? And there have been suggestions that this was a pandemic, etc. And there are many people who believe that this was an exercise in getting the masses, not COVID, the trans ideology, to get the masses to lockstep in with madness so that governments could test other things on us. The debates yeah. around science, I don't know if you follow Brett Weinstein and Heather Hayne, but they've been demonetized from YouTube. I don't know if it's come back yet, but they were at least 10 days ago. And the debates around COVID have been alarmingly controlled by big tech in the same way as my having been given suspensions and 24-hour or one-week bans from Twitter for calling a man he. Is there something to be said about the power of language that your book does get at? And it's very invested in words, obviously, that we maybe gave too much, even from our gay community, we gave too much in giving that pass, that LOL, okay, she's she's in a bad mood. Maybe we should stop using the language that is commanded of us. And maybe, you know, not to be authoritarian back at the authoritarian hand that's bumping me. But I'm wondering if there's an end point to this, because my worry is that this just gets stuck in the rinse cycle for many years. Because when we look back at history, this kind of madness can, especially when it's about men, can and will be put in the spin cycle for quite a long time. And you write in this afterward, they demand unswerving obedience to their bizarre new orthodoxies. Defiance can be frightening and costly, as the six dedicatees of this novel can testify. Many people concisely or otherwise choose the easier path of compliance. Many people face not having money to pay their rent if they speak out. We know this. It, yeah. As a freelancer, I can speak out. I think if I had stayed in academia, I would have already been kicked out. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking out because I'm, uh, I'm a novelist published by a very tiny independent publisher. Uh, I have a very frugal lifestyle and a small income. So just as J.K. Rowling was too big to destroy, I'm too small to destroy. <laughs> But, but you know that it's the, these accidents that, that that you know this is this suits me to be doing this at this time. I can do it. It's the, I think it's the right thing to do. It's what I want to do, and it's what you know this this particular book is something that that is consistent with what I've previously done. So it's my contribution, and it's a contribution that I think you know probably only I could make. 
so you know we we all do what we can when when circumstances permit and some people's circumstances certainly don't permit it you know i've got a very close friend who is senior in academia who is extremely supportive from the sidelines but that there isn't a hope in hell you know there's no way she could participate publicly um because she's the breadwinner from for a family uh so you know that's 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 reality uh, I, I you know i'm sure it's you know it's worth with your north american heritage it's it's worse from where you're looking um because you're much more uh, keyed into north american debates than I am, and it's worse there, and you know, particularly in Canada. What, well, but you know, I th I think sort of looking at the direction of travel. You know, I work in publishing. Uh, it's a very small company, so so I could talk my friend and and boss around um, to get uh, to, to get this published. Um, but he has been quite nervous because he thinks there might be a backlash and you know as yet we don't know it's too early but looking at the spectacular sales really good media reception and good retail profile of kathleen stock's book and of helen joyce's book and you know i hope mine will will have something similar i think publishers in a in an industry which has hitherto been captured uh, are going to be a lot less nervous um in in the future and we can see you know what, what's been happening to abigail schreier uh you know it's popped up again this week uh but you know the, the, whoever published that you know good on her uh she has probably made a lot more money and so has a, her publisher out of this book than than most publishers and authors make make from most books that are published so Right. It's that expression of there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? Yeah, I mean, that wasn't, I'm sure that wasn't her motivation for doing it, but I think it, 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 it is useful to be able to say to a publisher, actually, you think this is going to be controversial and therefore it might be commercial suicide. Well, it may well be controversial, but it's not going to be commercial suicide. It's going to be actually maybe one of the best commercial decisions you, you make this year. Uh, it still requires some courage to go through it, but I think that is powerful. And it recognizes the fact that if you shut down debate, then people, uh, you know, expression will find a way out and, there's a, and there is a, a large readership for it. There is a large demand for it, just as J.K. Rowling, you know, with that, the, the Robert Galbraith book under J.K. Rowling's alter ego with that in a ridiculous row where somebody had half read half a line and decided it was the most transphobic book ever written and instantly became a bestseller, not because people wanted to read the most transphobic book ever written, but because people like J.K. Rowling, they liked the Robert Galbraith books and it wasn't transphobic and they could see it for themselves. Absolutely. And this raises the larger question. Should journalists like Owen Jones, Laura Penny, all the rest who are demanding, signing on to letters to have Suzanne Moore let go, should they be in the business? See, this is my problem is what a hypocritical position to take. I, I really have problems with people in our line of work in academia as well, who think that only their ideas should be heard because that's what it comes down to. But when the pendulum swings the other way and they want to cancel Owen Jones, I'd have his back. I would have his back even if I don't agree with him. And this raises serious 
ethical questions within journalism as to why Viner has not simply told all those Guardian writers, there's the door. Yeah, it, it is. I, I, I'm baffled by this. I, I read, you, you perhaps read the same piece about the, the civil war between the Guardian and the Observer, and, uh, and it, it was, uh, I, I think it was just quoting anonymous sources, but it was basically saying that Kath Viner is petrified that Owen Jones is going to walk because he's making so much money out of his Patreon account that there's, there's not much keeping him at the Guardian. And, you know, an awful lot of people were saying online, well, let him, you know, what the hell is the problem? And, and I, I, I don't understand the answer to that because she, she I can see, you know, clearly new, newspapers have always been enthralled to youth because because you, once you get a newspaper buying habit then then you lock people in forever so just like hormones <laughs> yes exactly so so younger readers are, are more important than older readers to conserve because the older ones are just going to die uh, but so I, I i can sort of see that that logic but it, talk about trashing the brand so you know i suppose yeah, the Guardian is, is in this very peculiar position. The Guardian, you know, when I was growing up, was, was a marginal, slight, you know, the, the whole thing about calling it the Gorniad because it had so many spelling mistakes in it. It, it was, you know, by, I think, by far the lowest circulation broadsheet newspaper, uh, at least until The Independent came along. Um, and uh, it, you know, it, it was a, you know, Guardian readers were, were a, you know, small subset of, 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 of the world. Um, since you know the Guardian has has managed to uh, you know, turning itself free, basically sort of invading other English speaking territories where they didn't have a, a free to read uh, online press. So going into Australia and New Zealand and, and into um, the United States, I'm not sure if it's in Canada in the same way, but clearly they they are now hostage to the people to their offices there and and are terrified of being shut down by staff walkout. The Huffington Post era destroyed journalism. It put teenage bloggers on par with seasoned journalists. Journalists yeah. lost their livelihoods. We see the latest model is now the Pyramid Scheme publication. Um, I've been fundraising the last couple of weeks for a return to fact-based journalism. In fact, I was talking with a journalist from Gaza to write a piece for Savage Minds, and I want to be able to pay writers. Well, this is the deal. No one wants to pay writers. So why doesn't Viner see that there is a need to pay writers? Tell Jones to take his Patreon and go, and let's yeah. get new writers at The Guardian. Maybe he's being paid yeah. so much they could afford to give two people a job, not just one. And yeah. I think we do need to be more committed to buying books, reading authors. Let's stop pretending that reading five tweets means we've read a book. We need to understand that sometimes things are free because the quality is bad. And mm. the, the era of Trump, if there's one thing Trump was right about, and it's hard for me to even say this expression without feeling like I'm <laughs> embodying him, but fake news. He was absolutely right about fake news. And yeah. the fake news that those of us on the left thought for years was fake news was uniquely coming from the right. Mm, so not true. It's yeah. everywhere to be found. And we yeah. do need to be honoring writers, journalists, authors. We need to return to long reads, 
I've had people say, well, that article was so long. And I'm thinking it was 1300 words. That's not a long read in the era in which you were writing for papers, right? Yes, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I feel like we need to read more and live offline more. IRL. I, I, I'm sure it is true. I, I, I've been predicting for ages that there will come a generation of young people who, who discover uh, digital detoxing and, and then become evangelical about it and try and explain it to us and pretend that they invented it.